Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm your host, Katie Harbath. Coming to you to you today before we start season two officially in a couple of weeks, I'm still working on that, with an interview I'm doing with Latika Bork. Latika is a journalist that I first met about 10 years ago um, when she was working for the Sydney Morning Herald and I was in Australia doing trainings for politicians and stuff there um, about how to use Facebook. And so we wanted to, on this anniversary of Facebook's 20th birthday, come together and talk about how technology has impacted politics over the last 20 years, what we might expect in the next 20, and where we go from here and where society is going. So I hope you really enjoy the conversation. Wonderful to see you again. For the benefit of those who are tuning in to us for the first time, I guess I met you around, what, a decade ago in Canberra, and you were working for, was it Facebook then or Meta? Had, had we had the It was re-brand? Facebook. It didn't turn meta till after I left. It turned meta in the fall of 21. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you were Miss Facebook in Australia. And I think it is fair to say that back then the picture for Facebook was very rosy in terms of our jobs, because as a journalist, we we're very excited about how to use um, social media. We're also very excited in the political class about how to use it in elections. But today, this week is quite m- momentous because- Facebook turns 20? 20, yep. Wow. Um, I mean, Katie, I can remember when I first started using Facebook. It was 2006 and I was working at Radio 2UE in Sydney and I logged onto this site. Somebody had told me about it and it was back in the day where you could graffiti each other's walls. That was like the height of Facebook. And I used to get in trouble all the time from my work for using this ridiculous social media site um, on work time. And I think the data usage was so huge that I would get reports back from the superiors when I was working at 2am on a Sunday night and I was logging onto Facebook. Uh, Please stop using this. You will get reprimanded if you use it. Fast forward 20 years and I think it's almost impossible to be a journalist without social media. So I guess I wanted to ask you at the start, from the journey of where you began with Facebook and now Meta, how have you seen it evolve from your side? Yeah, I mean, it. if you go all the way back to, I think, 2006 or maybe it was 2005 is when I um, got on. I, st- I still had to use my, an alumni address because it still wasn't open to everyone <laughs> when I first signed up. And so 2005, 2006, I ha- had just finished working at the Republican National Committee for President Bush's reelect. And, um, you know, those early 2000s, it was a lot of, to your point, of trying to convince politicians to be on this site because they'd be mm-hmm. like, why do I want to be? somewhere where people are just posting what they had for lunch that day, right? Like it seemed kind of ridiculous. But then you started to have, um, you know, you also had YouTube that was kind of coming out around that time. You actually started, politicians started to see people uploading videos of them. They started to see other politicians start to use it and go into the 2010, 2011 timeframe. Then you have the Arab Spring where everyone, that was probably the height of people looking at social media and being like, wow, this could be a great democratizer. You now have a lot more people that can have access to those that represent them. You have a lot of different ways for people to gain awareness for the issues and the candidates and stuff that they care about. And looking through those rose-colored glasses really lasted through about the end of 2015, the beginning of the beginning mm. of 2016. Um, and so and, and during that time period, you had President Obama's re-election in the United States that had seen so much use of social media. You then started to see candidates all around the world, like 
so then I started traveling and that's how you and I met in Australia because all these political parties and others were kind of like, how do we do what Barack Obama did? And it was also all these politicians were getting a ton of great press because they were seen as new and cutting edge and using different tools in which to uh, reach voters. They were using, you know, data to better target voters. And that's when everybody was like, this is really cool technology, not necessarily, oh my gosh, what's this doing to my privacy and how's this using to persuade me, et cetera. And so now we are in a period of still, I think after 15 years of kind of having blinders on to the negative impacts of social media, we are now in this process of really still trying to figure out how we mitigate the the bad behavior and the negative effects of social media while still amplifying the good. I think it can be very easy for people to forget that there's still a lot of good aspects of social media that um, are a part of our society. Um, We just have to figure out how to find that right balance. Do you think Facebook is still the social media medium when it comes to electioneering? Because from my experience talking to digital campaigners in various political parties over jurisdictions and in different countries, it seems like there's a medium for each election. So back when you were beginning, it was the YouTube, Facebook, then it kind of moved to Twitter, I think, for a bit, um, which I know is a very elite place, but it also moved to Instagram, which is seen as a bit more wide uh, mainstream and a bit more open to, to regular people. Um, I don't think we'll see it on threads, but we've definitely seen a huge surge in TikTok use. Where do you think Meta sits in all those platforms? Yeah. And, you know, and of course, like this election too, a lot of people are talking about AI, right? Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of different platforms. I think the main thing is, I think we like to put a label on like picking one platform to kind of, cause it's nice, it packages it up nicely. But the truth of the matter is, is that, um, people use a lot of different online platforms for a lot of different reasons. And it kind of depends where you are. So in the United States, candidates are definitely still advertising on Facebook. It's still a place to get email addresses, raise money. Many other countries around the world, Facebook is still the dominant platform. Mm. Um, Some places like India have banned TikTok. So like... apps like Snapchat are are also rising. So I think Meta still and Facebook, the blue app, <laughs> as we kind of called it after the rebrand, um, still has a lot of people on it. Um, but and it still actually gets garners a lot more attention of people wondering how the leadership there and how much resources the company is putting into elections, elections overall. But I'll be really interested to see as we go through this election cycle, how much um, activity is actually happening on that app versus moving to some of these newer apps that might not have as many protections on it, um, Mm -hmm. might not have as many rules against politics, stuff like that. In your view, is Meta the most protected in terms of those protections you're talking about? It sort of depends. And I've actually been kind of mapping out and comparing the tech company announcements for 2024 versus past elections. Um, This is on your Substack Anchor Change, right? Yeah. And the Anchor Change Substack. So anchorchange.substack.com. And it's almost kind of hard to compare election cycle by election cycle because so much Mm -hmm. stuff changes between each one that is that is on there um and the reason i'm kind of making this complicated is like there's there's the policies that the companies have um then there's how well they are at executing those policies around it and i actually think places like facebook and google and microsoft are probably the best equipped in terms of the enforcement 
of a lot of this, particularly to around threat intelligence and looking for foreign interference and things of things of that nature around all this. But even then, I think that, you know, we're already seeing examples of these companies struggling to find AI generated content automatically. And I think that that is going to be a place where just all of these companies are still trying. The technology is just not there yet to be anywhere near 100% accurate. And we're never going to hit 100% accuracy of trying to find find some of this stuff. So I think we're just going to see new challenges, but they definitely have put the most money and time and resources into election work. Mm, and there's a difference there, isn't there? Because you're talking about infrastructure companies of the internet versus the dissemination companies, which is the social media ones of, of big tech. Um, yeah. And Every every platform is a little bit different in what they choose to in what they choose to do and like and even what the problems are on that on that platform. So you're right in that like it really does depend on what kind of company they are and the types and how those problems might manifest. Katie, I, I was really interested before you said how 2015, 2016 was kind of that point where things began to flip a bit for tech and their role in in campaigns. And that of course was Brexit, that was the year of Trump, Cambridge Analytica. What changed in that year in your view that made tech where it is now which I think is almost in many ways the villain of political campaigning and engineering in in many aspects yeah I think so the big date for me is May 9th 2016 because that was the the date of the Philippines election as well as that was when a controversy broke against Facebook uh, but where a contractor accused the company of suppressing conservative content in a trending topics unit that they mm-hmm. that they had and that that sort of broke open into the um, into the public, a lot of Republicans' complaints against these social media platforms, where they always view them as being kind of liberal and mm-hmm. and not really wanting to to treat Republicans the same. Now we can that's not true, but like that was the perception that that they had. But then to your point, you know, you had it was Brexit and Trump. I think were two election results that really shocked people. They were not expecting those two things to happen. And when that happens, people are searching for answers and they don't want nuanced answers. They want, they want something they can kind of get their head wrapped around. Right. And very early on it was, and it wasn't until after November. So even with Brexit, there wasn't a ton of tech lash, if you will, um, towards, towards companies. But then after when, when Trump won, people are searching for those answers. And the Trump team is like, we won because of Facebook. Now, when Barack Obama did that in 2012, we were all singing from the rooftops. It was seen Mm. as like, it was a really good press story. Now it's a really negative one. And I don't want to prescribe necessarily why that was, like if it was politics or something like that. But I think that shock of it all. And then people are like, wait a second, this thing has impact that we didn't realize what was happening. Oh, we can't, we want to dig into how Trump won. Wait a second. We can't see the ads that he ran. So now all of a sudden they're uncovering a lot of the facts that they, it's not as transparent to really try to understand what happened. And then you have Trump, you know, even throughout the campaign was really pushing the boundaries of content moderation, right? Mm-hmm. Really change, tr- pushing the boundaries of just campaigning overall and the language and the rhetoric that he is using. And so now he's also really 
testing these companies, uh, their rules and whether or not they're going to apply to a politician or not. Um, and then, and that, and those are really, really tricky conversations that many people have different viewpoints of what should happen. And then I think it all kind of continued to, to snowball as people debated these. And, you know, right after the November election, it wasn't Russian ads. It was Macedonian teenagers running fake news. Hmm. That people were like, oh, wait, was that it? Was that what caused it? Then we announced that we found the Russian ads. And then people were like, oh, it was the Russians. The Russians caused caused this to happen. And then, like you said, Cambridge Analytica, that scandal broke in March of 2018. And then people were like, oh, wait, it was the data. It was how they were targeting. Yeah. So it was kind of like wave after wave after wave kept building upon itself. And then ever since then, you just keep having more of these stories and leaks and things that are coming out where people are just, they're now getting a better sense of what's happening underneath the hood and what they don't know what mm. is happening underneath the hood that I think that they didn't even know before to ask those questions to even be concerned, if that makes sense. From an outsider's perspective, it felt like two things were happening. One, Facebook was quite happy originally, or all the social media companies at large were very happy to host this content. And then when it all got too hot for them, they went, hang on, no, we're going to downgrade news. We don't want to do links. We don't want all the, you know what? People just want to share their coffees and pet photos again. We're going back to that. So it kind of felt like it got a bit too hot in the kitchen and then tech wanted to vacate that space. Um, is that the way that you see it or is that a bit unfair? And is that ultimately, particularly Meta's case, saying, no, we're giving up? So I think, I don't think it's that they're giving up. I think that there's some real, listen, these are businesses, right? Mm. They're businesses. They've got to keep growing and make money. And we can have that debate if that's how they should be structured, but that's how they're structured right now. And Meta, you know, after so many years of, of, challenges and scandal and everything else like that, you know, pe their approval rating with people was quite low. Mm -hmm. And Morning Consult actually did a poll that shows people like Facebook more with less politics and news. So if you're a business person, if you're a leader at the company and you're looking at that, you're like, what am I getting out of doing anything around, around politics? And I think a lot of it too shifted just with where society as a whole was. Like we all do that, right? Like we all want to, when you're getting praised and you're in, and politics is popular because Barack Obama was such an inspiring figure and people were really excited about politics and being involved in it, that it was a very, it was a positive thing to be a part of. Since 2016 and in this Trump world that we've been living in now for eight-ish years, uh, it's a negative experience. It's gotten a lot more polarizing. And so people do want to pull back because they feel like they can't win. They can't, they don't know which way to move. It can be very paralyzing um, because, and then it, the question is, do you get distracted trying to deal with that versus other, like, mm -hmm. const, you know, constantly innovating or building new things and stuff like that? Now, all of that being said, I don't a couple of things. One, I always tell platforms you could run from politics, but you can't hide. If you're a place where people are at when an election cycle happens, people want to talk about that. And so you have to have a plan. You can't just be like, no politics on our site, because that's just not going to be realistic. You're still mm -hmm. going to have things that you have to deal with. I also think, too, a lot of these platforms, even if they're showing less of that content, they are still putting resources into this. They still know they have a responsibility. I think they're just trying to not be as as vocal about it because being vocal about it 
attracts attention, which can attract, you know, again, controversy. And it just generally doesn't end up well for that platform to have that being talked about in the news. I do worry, though, and I'm thinking a lot about this as we go into this epic year of elections, is that people are really burnt out on the news. It's Mm -hmm. right. It's been a really tough four years. We're coming up on that four-year anniversary of COVID and everything. Um, people are, at least in the United States, they are not wild about a Trump-Biden rematch. And, you know, the Iowa caucuses saw some of the lowest turnout. Now, some of that was the weather, but, you know, saw really low turnout. And so I, and then when you have these platforms and stuff, not necessarily showing as much of this content and all of that, I worry about what this could mean for civic engagement going forward. Are we going to enter a period and have a time period where you just have people kind of putting their hands up and not wanting to be involved? And that tends to then seed it to the extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, which could further ex- exasperate the the polarization and stuff that we see all around the world. And so my hope is, is again, that we can find the right balance of how we help people get information and, and stay involved in, in politics and be caring about it um, while also trying to figure out we're in the middle of re- figuring out our societal norms and how we hold people accountable for the speech that they say and what that sounds like. And so it's going to be chaotic for a while. So I want to ask you, you referenced there going into this bumper year of elections. Obviously, we're looking at the prospect of that Trump-Biden remix. What do the tech companies do if we are in the situation where one of the nominees is potentially back where we were on January 6 and disseminating messages that many would say are inciting violence or trying to overturn a democratic result. This is a whole new world, isn't it, for the tech companies? It is. And it's a more complicated world, too, because there's a chance that Trump will only post on Truth Social mm-hmm. and won't necessarily. He's running ads on, on Facebook and other places, but thus far he's been able to just post there and then others share that message. His um, team are the, very uh, active still on X, though. Yeah, no, well, that's why I'm saying. So it may not be him specifically, yeah. but his supporters, his campaign staff and others very much are on these different platforms and they are sharing it. I think a lot of the platforms are going to be really reluctant to kick any candidate around the world before an election off the platform. I think that, and I really wish the Facebook oversight board would do a little bit more on this than they might um, of trying to figure out like what the right approach for that should be. Um, We might see them like more likely than not, we'll see them reducing the reach of a lot of this type of content um, to try to make sure that less people are seeing it. Um, They're going to have to. That that then goes back to square one, doesn't it? Well, you're suppressing us, these tech companies are censoring. Exactly. Exactly. Us on the right, we're kind of exactly. And so, how do you pick? And so, that's why I think you are seeing the platforms move a little bit back towards a little bit more of a hands-off approach on on all of this um, to try to because it's just you just again can't really win. But I think this is the big question because the other thing too is that whatever happens here this year is not going to look the same as exactly the same as what January 6th looked like. It's not going to look the same as anything else. And so, you know, I get asked a lot, like, are the tech companies prepared for this year? And the truth of the matter is, we don't know. We know what 
kind of what they're doing because of these announcements and other things. But until we actually see their decision-making processes in real time, as these types of events are occurring, how transparent they are, and how well they are at even detecting and knowing themselves what's happening on the platform, it's going to be really hard to answer that question until after the election or even many mm-hmm. years after it. Because I would argue that we still don't even really have a good answer of how well these companies did in 2020. And if they're what if they did anything differently would have actually changed the course of history or not. And I think that's just that's something that researchers are trying to understand, but it's a very complicated question to answer. So let's go under the hood. Take us into what happens inside a tech company when these events unfold. Who's literally making these decisions? How big is the team? How fast do you have to make these decisions? What kind of qualitative processes are you going through? So there's a lot of work that we do in the buildup to an election. And so when I was at Facebook, we would usually start about a year and a half to two years out from an election um, because we would do a lot of research and risk analysis and we'd you know, have to see, like, do we make sure that we have enough language capability? If you want to build products or hire people, that stuff takes time. So you need to start well ahead of time. And part of that, too, is figuring out, um, and we had to do this at Facebook. We did this um, first going into the 2018 midterms, where we unveiled these election war rooms. And a lot of people thought it was just a PR stunt, but it wasn't. (laughs) It was a real thing where we had... um, as you would get closer to the election, we would have 24-7 coverage. We had three shifts of people and we had them all in one room and you would have a shift lead for each one. And so we'd have a process that um, whether it was our own systems flagging something or a trusted partner or you know, a journalist calling us up saying, hey, we're seeing this on the platform. We had a process by which it would go into go to that lead. It would get triaged to, it could be a content policy team. It could be an operations team. Team. It could be the threat intel t- team. So it really depended on what the issue was, quote unquote. And then it kind of depended on who was having the problem what, and what that issue might look like. So some of those things could be decided in the room and they could be decided quite quickly. Um, other ones, you know, if it had to do with, let's say, Trump and something Trump said, then what that room would be doing is pulling together a one page memo with the facts of here's here's the question. Here's what happened. Here's what we know. And then that would get escalated up to leadership where um, sometimes you could get an answer quite quickly. Sometimes it would take a couple hours because you you got to pull different folks together and schedules and, and stuff like that. Sometimes it took days, depending upon uh, mm. what the what the issue was. So, um, but you kind of had a constant stream of stuff that was coming in, and people, and then you would do handoffs um, from each shift for people to pick up any of the problems and stuff that they had as part of it. And does that process at all involve liaison with the teams themselves? And I'm thinking here. If we do have a repeat of a January 6th style incident, is there a point where someone at Meta sees a post go out from Trump or his aides, says, hang on, that's dangerous, that's inciting, we can call the team and ask them to take it down or before we even have to escalate ourselves? Does does that kind of conversation go on? So... It used to. I don't know if I don't know if it still does. It still does today. And it sort of depends. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But and but we actually had a very philosophical and ethical conversation about whether or not that should be done, because taking if it was Trump out of out of the picture of just kind of anyone, sometimes they may not have known it was against our policies. 
And if we took something down, going back to, you know, uh, people being like, oh, you're censoring us, you're taking down our content, et cetera. We figured like if, because if we just took it down, they'd probably run to the press and then we get a negative story and then you got to deal with the whole news cycle. So if you can call them up and be like, hey, this is actually against our rules. We want to give you a chance to edit it before we took it down. Now at Facebook, some people might know this as the cross check system. We had an extra layer of protection for accounts so that nothing got taken down without review and stuff. And sometimes we would have this remediation window where they had 24 hours or something to fix it. And then if they didn't, we would, we would take it down. Um, and there's just been a lot of controversy about that, about whether or not the platform should do that, um, whether or not you know, the company should call Trump or Biden or anybody like that. And so that itself has gotten very controversial. And I think you're even seeing that that's now ballooned into the Supreme Court case that's actually mm. in front of the court right now about the how the social media and the U.S. government cooperate and have a partnership around potential mis and disinformation on the site. And the suit started because the Missouri attorney general was like, this is the government's violating the First Amendment because they're telling these tech platforms to take down content by Americans and that violates the First Amendment. And so this is all kind of being decided right now. And while it's being decided, it's had a real big chilling effect on any sort of those conversations or partnerships or anything because nobody wants to be looking to run afoul of the law. Interesting. And just finally, Katie, I guess one of the observations I would have since Elon took over X is that so many people left that platform, but they haven't looked elsewhere. They've actually just quit social media altogether. And it seems like what's happened to the mainstream media, I think 20 years ago when we had um, online advertising and then you guys coming along in, in terms of social media, was the fragmentization of that. And it's been very hard to be gatekeepers in a mainstream media sense. I feel like that is now also happening to social media. You're disintegrating the main platforms further and further and further, and actually none is getting that critical mass that they used to enjoy. Where do you feel like a company like Meta and a platform like Facebook or any of the other social media companies might be if we're having this discussion in another 20 years' time? Oh my gosh. I think that I think that these platforms will still exist, but they may they're going to look incredibly different than what they do today. Um some of them might end up getting merged into into other platforms. Who knows if we're going to, you know, a lot of it could be in virtual reality or augmented mm -hmm. reality depending upon the the types of tools and stuff that we have. We're going to see so much technological innovation in the next 20 years. I don't even think I can get my head wrapped around exactly what that's going to look like. Like, remember, think about 20 years ago, we didn't have the iPhone. Yeah, You didn't have, you know, you were mostly using a desktop to, to do a lot of this. You didn't have live streaming was really hard. Doing anything like we're doing right now was, was quite difficult um, as part of that. And so, and, but you know what? Platforms like MySpace still exist. Um, I actually what? want to look to see. Yeah, MySpace still exists. Serious? It's a huge music. It's a music thing um, that people use to find artists and stuff. And I even Googled to see if Friendster was still around. And it looks <laughs> like somebody wants to revive Friendster um, as part of that. So um, I think I think we're going to keep seeing these these companies um, exist. It's just it, the question is just what that exactly looks like and where is this technological innovation take us and no matter what these are going to be used for politics 
politicians yeah. and brand marketers and anyone, they're going to keep using all of this. Um, and if it's not through the mainstream platforms, it will be smaller platforms that build stuff specifically for politics. Um, and so that's going to be kind of the big question of like, does this become its whole own market of stuff where people are not, are, are building these for politicians while bigger platforms try to stay as hands off as possible. And the most disruptive, I guess, immediate tech challenge to that is AI. How well prepared do you think the various companies are for AI and this year of elections? They're definitely trying. But that being said, I do think, again, the detection systems have a long way to go. Um, there's still a lot of debate about the right way to label or watermark this content, whether it's organic or ads. They've written policies around it. A lot of them like OpenAI and BARD, which is Google's. Um, if you try to like do a prompt around anything political, they're just not going to allow it to happen. While they try to figure out like the impact of this or what the right ethical boundaries are for it, um, which is a very different approach than in the past, where it was sort of like, we're going to let them use it and then we'll try to figure out the solutions. Now people are sort of like, maybe we should just not allow them to use it while we try to figure out the rules, um, which I think is, it is a responsible approach. But I think the challenge for me there is that, again, people are still going to use AI. They're going to find other ways. They're going to find ways around it. They're going to build their own large language models, stuff of that nature, especially with open source AI. Katie, the scenario you, you raised there, I mean, what's the point if we're all stopping ourselves and then there's bad guys out there who aren't going to stop themselves? Exactly. Which is um, where a lot of this disinformation we fear as democracies might, might come from, right? Exactly. This is why, again, I just feel like you cannot run away from this. Like the responsible thing is to actually try to tackle these types of problems. Because if we just stick our heads in the sand, that does nothing. Because like you said, other actors who want to influence these elections are going to use these tools. They already are. Um, and so we need to, and there's no finish line to all this. I think that's another thing that's kind of exhausting to people is like, have we like mis and disinformation has been around since the dawn of time <laughs> um, that's been happening. It's just ex accelerated now with social media and AI. And so I, you know, while we're talking a lot about platforms pulling back and stuff like, like that, I do want to, I don't want to leave us thinking that nobody's working on this. A lot of mm. people are, a lot of people are trying to figure this out. A lot of researchers, despite all of the attacks on them and everything are still wanting to do this work. And so there is, there are people trying to figure this out. It's just that the answers are not easy um, for that. And so it is going to take time of working through and seeing how people use it and kind of reacting to it for these platforms to kind of figure out what those guardrails are. Well, Katie, I think that's a great place to leave it because we're going to have so much more to talk about this year as the elections unfold. And we'll see how many of our predictions and thoughts came true. But I'll be watching all your analysis on Anchor Change. And it's been awesome to run into you again, uh, virtually, um, what a decade later. And I can't wait to see you when I'm next in the US. Absolutely. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. <music>